0: Uh, Hey, Pitchfork listeners. Last week, Nick and I had a great conversation with Wendy Bach about how punitive and difficult to navigate our social safety net is. And if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to go right back into our archive and listen to it now. Done? Okay. Well, that reminded us about a great conversation we had back in 2019 with Felicia Wong, the president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, and Civic Ventures alum Hannah Brooks Olson about why it's so difficult to climb out of poverty. We think it's a great companion piece, to last week's conversation, so we're sharing it again. And while I have you, I just want to let you know about our new weekly newsletter, The Pitch. In a recent pitch, Zach Silk explains to Democrats why doing popular things is popular. Who knew? So if you're interested in the latest economic data and analysis, please subscribe to the pitch at civicventures.substack.com, where you can find the link in the show notes.
1: What we've long understood, though, is that some communities have consistently had the odds stacked against them.
0: That already low poverty line, the vast majority of the people who fall below that are working
1: poor.
2: Over half the jobs created by the economy since the 2008 financial crisis were poverty level jobs.
1: So I hope this conversation continues, not as a question of whether, but of how we can work together to grow opportunity.
3: Hugely what I have seen among people is a feeling of a loss of control. Over their future, over what they can do. Loss of agency. Yeah, just you're just at the
2: mercy of whatever like rich dudes do next. Poverty isn't like a scratch or a bruise. We're talking about a really cancerous tumor, and band-aids are really not the solution to the problem. We
1: all want our country to be one where hard work pays off and responsibility is rewarded. We want a place where you can make it if you try.
3: From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer,
2: a pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. My
3: name is Hannah Brooks Olson. I am a writer. I am an award-winning journalist, which I always like to lead with. I am an anti-poverty advocate. I'm a former poor person, and I am a college graduate, first in my family.
0: I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures.
3: So you guys asked me to come in today.
0: Oh, absolutely. You
3: rolled out the red carpet.
0: We rolled out the For red me. carpet, Hannah, partially because we miss you, and partially because you know this is an episode on poverty and why it's so hard to get out of poverty, and uh, Nick and I know a lot about the numbers, but we are these spoiled, privileged uh, white men who actually never experience poverty ourselves, whereas... You have a little more experience in the empirical, real world uh, reality
1: of it.
3: Yeah, I am a one-time ragamuffin.
0: You
1: are uh, a genuine, <laughs> a genuine export person. Yeah,
3: I am. I'm a Horatio Alger story sitting right in front of you.
0: The exception um, that proves the rule.
3: I think I'm actually the exception that proves that you can get exceptionally lucky over and over and over again, uh, and that even people who live in some degree of poverty can also be extremely privileged because yeah. that's the other thing is like i'm still white i you know grew up with parents who valued education hugely even though they didn't necessarily have it um yeah
1: you were already a thousand times yeah ahead.
3: but but i also you know i live in a family where both of my siblings were also extremely extremely smart both don't have college degrees and they have um very sort of and my sister especially is like a total like more of an American dream than I am. She's a small business owner with no degree, and she's amazing at it. But she's also someone who got
0: lucky in a lot of ways. Well, well, that's a great starting point because um, I, I want to make a distinction here between the empirical reality of poverty, which we'll talk a lot about on this episode, and the theoretical and narrative devices that we use to explain or explain away poverty, as the right. case might be. And... I just want to focus for a moment on the theoretical side and the what we consider to be the relentless logic of the market and the way that it compounds advantages right. and disadvantages over time. And we mean that quite literally. Nick, I mean, throughout this series, we have made this distinction between the neoclassical orthodox economic model of the economy as a closed equilibrium system and the emerging science that models the economy as a complex, adaptive, and evolutionary system. And this is really important because in an evolutionary system, we are literally talking about a process of differentiation, selection, and amplification. And just like in an ecosystem where you are evolving new creatures, we have a market economy that will amplify very small differences, little differences in adaptation. And uh, you can have very small differences in starting point or even just tiny, seemingly insignificant, random events, and that can result in very large outcomes that seem outsized compared to where you started.
3: I mean, I, I think one really good example is the last, so, so say the last 10 years, I graduated from college in 2009, which was a great year to graduate from college, <laughs> if anyone recalls 2009. And now uh, I'm in my 30s here in Seattle, Washington, one of the most expensive housing markets. And so it feels like both my starting point as I like kind of entered into adulthood and then now when I should be, like, really, like, tying it up, I'm, I'm I'm waiting for the bubble to burst before I can do anything. And not because I made necessarily bad choices, literally just because of how old I am and right. the yeah. year I was born and, and the year things happened.
0: Right. And by comparison, I graduated. I'm old. So I graduated college in 1985 with a degree in history at a time when the economy was really strong and companies said, hey... You're a smart kid who graduated from a good school and you're trained to do absolutely nothing. Come over here. We're gonna pay you a decent white collar wage, (laughs) and we're gonna teach you how to do the job. And as a result, uh, I own a house in this amazingly expensive housing market that I bought 20-some years ago. In an up-and-coming neighborhood. In an up-and-coming neighborhood. And I feel a little bitter about about the generation before me when they got those houses for uh, a quarter of the price oh, that I paid. Gosh. But my God, you
3: kids. Yeah. So the question, I mean, that we're talking about is like why is getting out of poverty so hard? And a big part of it is you can't predict any of this. You can't plan around this. There is no decision-making process you can make to change, first of all, where you're born again, no. which benefits you have right at the beginning and then also what kind of economic climate you graduate into I mean the cost of college has increased by like 200% since I graduated and I'm still crushed by student debt a decade after graduation College graduates are carrying more student loan debt than ever before in total 44 million Americans owe nearly one and a half trillion dollars and on average a 2016 graduate is on the hook for about $37,000 upon receiving that diploma I don't even know how this generation is doing
1: it Student debt. I do. How much?
3: Uh, I have now. I think I'm down to like eleven grand, Hmm. which I graduated from college with some amount that now seems relatively small in comparison to other people. I want to say I graduated with something like seventy thousand dollars in debt. Seventy
1: thousand.
3: And it seems small because all and all I have is undergrad, and I worked the whole time. I paid for my summer classes in cash with money I made as a waitress. I like was. Uh, constantly working. I mean, I was. Can you
1: remind me where you went to college?
3: Western Washington University. I went to a state school.
1: And you still racked up seventy thousand in- dollars. No
3: one in my family knew that going to school out of state was more expensive, so I went to the school that had a teaching college, which is what I was going to do originally. Ah. Yep. And I, I mean, I paid as little as possible. Like it was as absolutely little as I could. Like my degree is twice as expensive because I couldn't pay for it up front wow. which yeah. is another way that we keep people poor but yeah. if we
0: let you off the hook and forgave your loan i mean think about the moral hazard you <laughs> might true. go to college a whole second time yeah. and this time you might at, get a master's degree <laughs> and actually and actually become Learn a teacher <laughs> which is so low paying that you couldn't yeah. you still couldn't afford to buy a house
3: i mean that's the thing you know when you talk about like what what is the answer is it education one thing i would say is it's not education as long as People can't afford, you know, I mean, I told my partner one time that if our house was on fire, I would save the dog in one arm and my degree in the other, because it's the two things that I love the most in the world, because I'm so proud that I like finished school. But God, it is so expensive. And so I think when we talk about getting out of poverty, it's really difficult because there's, again, just so many different forces every step of that way. Like there's some other way that it's whittled away right but like um, if it's not healthcare costs it's childcare, or if you're you know people of my generation are starting to get and goldies i guess too is with being the sandwich generation right where like i guess we all kind of are in this where you have kids and parents both of which you're caring for and so that can like knock you down a bunch of different ways yeah and you know there's like there's like little stuff so my parents live in rural oregon or they live in like eugene and outside of eugene so after college, like I could not move back home with them because if I did, I would not be able to work. Like, what am I going to do right. like, living out there? So I moved to Seattle because I got a, an internship. Again, a time I was very lucky. Someone gave me an unpaid internship in 2009. So also I was a cocktail waitress and also I was a barista. And also I took on a lot of odd jobs that year. But during that year, you know, when I was working bananas hard just trying to like pay rent stay afloat my friends who had parents who lived in seattle who were from seattle had a huge advantage just because they had somewhere to crash for free yeah i didn't have that right Right. you know or they had parents who helped them out with rent like i earn more than my parents ever have now and i'm a freelancer so like bracket your expectations and i pay my own health insurance and i'm just throwing money heaping money at my student loans and i'm still doing great like by my account because yeah. we like can go to dinner and it's fine yeah. and i'm able to save money but it's it's cuz we're lucky it's not yeah. because of any decisions we made so like when we talk about like Who is poor? There's so much moralizing that goes into it when I think we really need to be thinking a lot about luck, circumstance, and, like, who's born on third.
0: And that's the biggest aspect of luck is how you're born, whether you're born poor, born middle class, born wealthy. Born white. Born white.
3: Or born in a place where there's jobs once you get out of high school, you know? Which
0: was different back in the 1960s when you could be born into a small town in the Midwest and uh, graduate high school and get a union job at the local factory where you were guaranteed a middle-class wage and- And a pension. Right, and vacation and benefits and so forth.
3: You know who knows a lot about this stuff our friend felicia wong from the roosevelt institute so we thought we'd touch base with her uh, about some of the metadata on poverty what we can do and also whether or not we're even talking about this right hi
2: this is felicia
1: felicia are you there
2: hello nick how are you I'm great. How are you? Good. Hi, I'm Felicia Wong, and I'm president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute.
3: So we have we have some questions. Today we're talking about, about the economy, as we always do, but specifically how the economy is sort of rigged toward inequality and also sort of keeping people there. So can you talk to us a little bit about the past like four or five decades and how, how we got here and what some of those decisions were?
2: Well, I think... Part of the problem is that, for many decades, at least since the 1980s, um, you know, we have thought about. Uh, people in poverty um, as needing certain kinds of programs, right? Food stamp programs, other kinds of TANF programs. And look, these kinds of programs in the poverty alleviation frame generally is really important. But in a way, these are kind of like Band-Aids. Like these are not the right policies because they are not really cures And one of the other problems is that poverty isn't like a scratch or a bruise. We're talking about a really cancerous tumor, uh, and band aids are really not the solution to the problem. So I think it's important to look at much deeper ways in which the structure of, of our economy is actually driving poverty.
1: Right. And so, you know, Felicia, what I often say is that people are poor because they're not paid enough money. Right. <laughs> Which seems right. really obvious. It's so
3: simple. Yeah,
1: it's really super simple. In a capitalist economy, you know, you're not poor because you don't get food stamps. You're not poor because you didn't get rent assistance. You're poor because you didn't get paid enough money uh, by your, almost certainly by your employer. To, to be clear, there are some people who don't have jobs. Sure. There are people who definitely in our society and, and to be fair in every society, can't actually can't take care of themselves and and, and may not have the capacity to have a job but that's a relatively small proportion of the people in our country who are struggling the vast majority of people who are struggling actually do have jobs and are still poor
2: so how do we get there well you know i think one of the ways i like to think about this is the way like martin luther king thought about it you know his poor people's campaign from the mid-1960s really talked about Yes, he definitely talked about the number one thing was a meaningful job at a living wage for every employable citizen. And he talked about access to land and he talked about access to capital and he talked about, you know, the right to organize. So all of these things together are the things that actually our economy doesn't do well at providing for most people. And that is why people are poor. Right. Right? Some people have little or no capital. They have no hope of getting it in a capitalist economy, as you often say, Nick, as right. you just said, right? Some people live in places where work is totally disappeared, where there is no hope of work, you know, there remain, even in an economy that looks very bubbly, like our economy today, there remain neighborhoods where black men are still at 40% unemployment, right? Black men of working age. Um, Some people who have jobs, they can't organize for better wages, um, Some people have no access to housing and no hope of getting housing. So these are all like very big problems. And again, not to denigrate food stamps. Food stamps are very important for many people. But that kind of approach is not what's going to get us out of poverty. So that's a long way of saying it. The short way of saying is we don't have the right policies, probably because we don't have the right analysis of what's wrong. I think lots of people currently think about markets as being these things that just operate perfectly by themselves, right? And that if a market is operating properly and government gets out of the way, then you know the supply curve and the demand curve are going to cross and that people will be paid what they're worth and that you know all people will be able to live a decent life. Um, but actually, that is not the way markets work. Markets are structured to work for some people and not for other people, mm-hmm. so that we talk a lot at Roosevelt about the rules that we need to structure markets so they actually do work properly. And one of the things that we've seen now, just by way of example, is that the increase in corporate power, for example, in our economy means that we um, have companies that are making tremendous numbers of profits, as you have said, Nick. But those profits are actually going right back to the executives um, who take those profits out of the company um, in the form of stock buybacks, and they're not actually being uh, transmitted back to workers in the form of wages. So that that gets right back to where you started this conversation, Nick. People are poor because they are not being paid enough money. So what we need to then focus on are the rules that either allow people to do that or don't allow people to do that. The rules that would require Paying a living wage or not?
1: Yeah.
3: So I, I have a question then, and this is sort of a kind of a big question, but um, how do you right. get then from the market will fix itself to we have to step in or sort of ensure that this this playing field is leveled?
2: Well, you know, <laughs> this is an answer you would expect from somebody like me because, like, I run a think tank, but like, <laughs> yeah, you have to look at the data, right? And you know, here is one interesting statistic all reduction in poverty has occurred through government action it's government that reduces poverty rates so 50 years ago 1967 the poverty rate was 27 percent without tax credits and benefits Today, that number is 16% if you include tax credit and benefits, and all of that is through government programs. This is, you know, based on some work that Jason Furman recently did. So you really have to look at the role that a number of government programs play in reducing poverty and yet still, we have the kind of poverty rates, um, you know, that we were lamenting at the top of the hour, you know, the idea that uh, we didn't say this, but you know, at some point over half of all Americans will live in poverty. Um, And my point is the way for us to get out of poverty is through government action. Some of that is through direct tax and transfers. And a lot of it, as we try to argue at Roosevelt, is actually through restructuring rules. So you don't have things like stock buybacks, and instead you have things like higher wages.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But Felicia, don't you think that the country's economy is at the point now... Where in many ways, I don't know how to say this. I don't mean to say that poverty isn't a problem, but it's almost becoming a second order problem as most people in the middle class become poor. Yes. Right? Like our language doesn't capture this very well because... We only have one word for poverty, poor, right? <laughs> right but,
3: well, and but, most people think of themselves as middle right. class, right? Even people who right. earn right. Yeah. well below the poverty line still consider themselves to be middle class. Yeah.
2: Right. But frankly, we don't think about it that way at Roosevelt really for exactly the reason that you suggested, Nick, right? That because it's really not about a small fraction of poor people. Yeah. It is really about the disenfranchisement and the lack of power and agency of the vast majority of Americans. And frankly, I think it's one of the reasons that Occupy took off in 2011 was because the tagline, we are the 99%, like that really resonated that, you know, mathematically, it is true that the 1% were pulling away from the 99%. But it also is true that even people at the 70th percentile, even people at the 80th percentile felt very insecure, right? They had too much debt. They didn't know how they were going to pay their kids' school fees. They weren't sure, you know, about whether or not they'd be able to afford a vacation or a restaurant meal or any of the things that we think about as sort of the markers of, you know, a modest middle-class life so I think that one of the reasons that at least for a while we were talking about this as inequality was to try to capture and I'm not sure that inequality by the way is the right political frame either, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah because it feels very mathematical and like the economists love it but like inequality still doesn't feel very human and I think what we need is an economy that works for people <laughs> and by the way you know, a capitalism that works for more people. That's really what we ought to be focused on. But at any rate, you know, the poverty frame, which comes from the 1960s and 1970s, feels like it was an artifact of a time when, like, most people were not in fact poor and there was more equality of opportunity and people could expect that their kids would do at least as well and probably better than they would in have an economically secure life. And poverty was about alleviating the pain. That's when programs like whether it's Head Start or food stamps or whatever, they, you know, they started in a period where we had to we weren't looking at our whole economy, we were looking at people who for some reason yeah. um, often because of race or gender, by the way. But for some reason, we're not um, able to fully partake in a market economy. The situation now is totally different. So the poverty frame right now kind of feels like, yes, alleviating poverty is really important, but actually fixing the way our whole economy works. That's what's most important.
3: I think once you, you know, one of the things I found in in writing and reporting is when you really like sort of loop people in and, and place them on the spectrum and sort of show how their experience puts them not as much maybe in the comfortable middle class as they would think, or when you sort of show them the numbers or you sort of like loop them in, then everybody sort of feels a little bit poor a lot of the time. Uh, So I think there's sort of a pro and con there. But I think, you know, poverty alleviation, like you said at the the very top, I think it lets a lot of the systems off the hook that create poverty and that create that precarious middle class. Like if you're only focused on food stamps, you're not focused on, prison industrial complex. You're not focused on, you know, out of control medical bills. You're not focused on all these other huge systems that keep people not just poor, but keep them out of that upper middle class American dream echelon. I think
2: that's exactly right.
1: But I think one of the most pernicious ideas that actually a lot of people on our side, um, lots of progressives have come to believe, certainly neoliberals, as that you know, people are poor. People aren't paid enough because they're not well-educated enough. Right. And this is a super pernicious right. idea. Right. That is just right. objectively false.
2: And that's not, right, that is not true. That is all, not right? true.
1: But it's this trap that you can get into, which is that it was, which is to come to believe that the people at Walmart who are paid seven or eight bucks an hour are paid that because that's what they're worth, because that's right. be, all their educational attainment allows them to deserve. it. because
3: they didn't bother to, you know, try, right? Whatever.
1: Uh And it's a a tricky area because on the one hand, yay, more education is always better. (laughs) And on the other hand, no, that's not why people are poor and it's not why people are poorly paid. So if Felicia Wong was in charge of everything, what would the top three things be that she would do to fix this mess? Sorry to put you on the spot there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well...
2: You know, I do a couple things. I, I would definitely think about ways to kind of right size and or right incentivize uh, large companies. And, and, you know, kind of I would go in the direction of Elizabeth Warren's new kind of accountable capitalism bill, which mm-hmm. talks about all, the, all kinds of ways in which very large companies need to actually be good corporate citizens. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I would do. Um, I think the second thing I would do is to really make sure that, kids of all races have enough capital, enough potential to have some kind of wealth. So whether it's a kind of baby bond or like something so that at the very beginning of your life, you start out with at least some fighting chance for opportunity. Um, And then, you know, the third thing I would do, well, do I get, can I have four?
1: Yeah, you can have four. We're going (laughs) to make a special exception for you. uh, The first
2: thing I would do is to, and this is actually the hardest thing, I would, Absolutely desegregate our schools and our neighborhoods. I mean, I really you you said I could be like, yeah, 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 you can can just impose your
1: will on the world.
2: I think that the idea that we are so divided geographically by race and as a corollary by income and or wealth is absolutely pernicious. So I would desegregate. And the last thing I would do is, like, make sure that we have a democratic Institution, small D, not big D, like actually have a functioning democracy, because I believe that only when people continue to have input and agency and voice in making all these decisions, only then would a system that you set up reasonably well from the beginning be able to have any fighting chance of self-sustaining. So those are the four things I would
3: do. I think that's
1: really awesome. Those are very close
3: to the four I wrote down. <laughs> I wrote overturn Citizens United and uh, strengthen the Voting Rights Act as one. So I think we're on the same
1: page there, Felicia. Same thing. Right. Same thing.
2: You've got the legislation. I've got the, you know, <laughs> principles. But it's all the same. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, Felicia, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us ch- chatting about this stuff. It's great to talk to you.
2: Great to talk to you. Thanks so much to both of you. <laughs>
0: So as Felicia pointed out, uh, most of the gains in reducing poverty over the past 50 years has come from federal programs, from transfers and subsidies. But even after that, we still have 16% of Americans living in poverty, which of course is a disgrace in the wealthiest country on earth with an unemployment rate of only 14%. But that that 16% number, even that still understates the problem. Today, one-third of Americans are housing cost burdened in that they pay over 30% of their income in rent. Nearly half of families say they have no retirement savings at all, and 78% of Americans report that they are living paycheck to paycheck, with 44% saying that they couldn't even cover a $400 emergency expense. Clearly, it's not just the very poor who are struggling, so are the bulk of the American middle class. And of course, all of these numbers are much, much worse for people of color and for children. So that broadly is the problem. The the solution, I think we all agree, is to raise wages. And again, getting back to Felicia's point, that's going to require the government. But the broader point is, this is about much more than addressing the needs of the very poor. Most of the poor are working poor, and that means the working middle class. So maybe we should try to define poverty, which isn't as simple as it at first seems. There's actually two kinds of poverty. There's absolute poverty and relative poverty. Absolute poverty a lot of people have a good idea of what that is. It's actually being below subsistence, not having enough food, uh, not having shelter, not, not being able to keep warm in the winter, et cetera. Uh, the, the basic uh, subsistence elements of life. And then there's what we can call relative poverty and you often hear this critique from the right that oh Americans aren't poor these are the richest poor people in history.
3: Well, oh, yeah uh, they have phones and running water air
0: conditioning Ugh, right spoil
3: back in my day Poor people
0: slept on the ground. Right. And you know what? In my day, some poor people still do sleep on the ground a lot more than they used to. Yeah. So we're failing on both counts. We're failing on, as you can see, the explosion of homelessness uh, throughout the country in Seattle, San Francisco, really everywhere. The
2: homeless population in the United States is on the rise for the first time since the Great Recession.
0: And then there's also... Relative poverty, which speaks to the growing inequality in this nation. And it is not a fictional thing to say that growing inequality, even if you have that subsistence level, you're not poor because you have a TV set and a, and a cell phone. Because in... In the modern technological economy we have today, Nick, you actually need things like cell phones and internet and so forth just to participate in this economy.
1: Right. Well, yeah, can you
3: imagine applying for a job without the internet? Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, to your point, Goldie, so the federal poverty line to define it is $24,600 for a family of four, (laughs) which, first of all, is bonkers low. But not only that, that means that a family earning $25,000 with a family of four is not considered poor. So when we talk about like who is poor, quote unquote, there's a very distinct category of people, something like 16% of Americans, which is still like 40 million Americans or something like that, who are considered poor, quote unquote, based on their earning. But I would argue that a family of four earning $30,000 a year is still poor, like you're pretty poor.
0: And and this is not just an an arbitrary line because the poverty line determines what benefits you qualify for.
3: Yeah. If you go a dollar above, you know, and it depends. it, It goes state by state and it also goes by how many dependents you have and all this kind of thing. But I mean, there's a lot of people who are really struggling to pay for their groceries, to you know, put gas in their car and all that kind of thing, but who also are not considered poor enough, again, quote-unquote, for these benefits. Yeah,
1: um, and, and part of the goofiness of the, this number is that while a family who earns twenty-five or $30,000 a year in a tiny rural town where housing costs approach zero, right. they're not rolling in dough, but surely they can at least house and uh, feed themselves. Right. But a family of four... Earning $24,600 a year in a city in the United States of America. Certainly a city like Seattle or Portland or San Francisco or L.A. They are like way poor because yeah. you can't even get a one bedroom apartment in a place like Seattle for $2,000 a month, No, right? no. no, I, and,
3: I, I was yeah. just looking at the uh, yeah. National low Income Housing at the um, out of reach data that they do every year. I was just looking at this today. And you have to earn something like $27 an hour um, to earn a one bedroom in Seattle, which is almost twice, $15 minimum wage, which yeah. is then a hell of a lot more than twenty five grand a year. Yeah,
1: for a family of four. For a family
3: of four. <laughs> right. But if you're earning, again, $30,000 in Seattle, You're pretty damn poor. Yeah. And you still are not necessarily uh, eligible for a lot of different kinds of benefits. And so it's not as though, you know, one of the things that people who have not been poor, not recently been poor, uh, will sort of part of the mythologizing they do is that, um, you know, people stay poor so that they can get all those like sweet, sweet benefits (laughs) Uh, so I can get that that, that, mm, that free Orca card. Ooh, it's so good. Oh, not realizing like how low you have to be to get that stuff. Yeah. It's not like you have a dope life and also you get a free Orca card. It's you have a very <laughs> difficult life. And congrats. Maybe you get a free Orca card. Yeah. You can now go to your third job. Yeah. Remind us what an
1: Orca card oh, is. Oh, sorry. That's the bus pass we
3: have here <laughs> yeah. at uh, So in King County, you have the bus pass. And if you're like a senior or you're uh, poor, or you're a teenager, you can get a reduced pass. Below passed. that poverty
0: line. Yeah. You get a... It's so our it. version of
3: a Metro card. New York, okay?
0: Right. Now they understand. and, And to be clear, that already low poverty line, the vast majority of the people who fall below that are working poor. Th- these are not just people, uh, you know, welfare queens or kings or I don't know what the non-gendered equivalent of that There isn't is. one.
3: We only talk about women in that way. <laughs> okay. Don't worry about it. Uh...
0: <laughs> don't worry, you pretty head about <laughs> yeah. it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. W- that, welfare right.
3: Steves is right. what I'll be calling right. it. These
0: are, these are mostly working poor, and that means they are poor not because they don't have jobs, but Nick,
1: you know this line yeah, because they're not paid enough.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you think about, I mean, I think this is something we've come back to a million times, right, is that if you work full-time, you should be able to live, period. (laughs) You should be able to live. You should be able to rent a place. You should be able, and the idea that not only our wages, like the bottom, the floor of wages, not in any way tied to cost of living is already difficult, Um, but we have become so skewed in what we think of as, like, what people should earn, like... We all were around for the fight for 15 where people were like, $15 an hour, that's so much money. (laughs) 40 hours a week, $15 an hour is not enough money to rent an apartment in Seattle. Yeah. Thus, it's not that much money. Right, yeah. And so, we, I mean, we pulled up some numbers earlier, and it was like of the working age individuals, the people who were poor uh, but didn't work, it was because almost 20% were disabled, 10% were in school, a lot of them were taking care of somebody else, only something like 5% were, were not working and... Poor. Like th- that was the intersect. Like it's very few. Most people have a job at some point. They either do seasonal labor. For example, one of the biggest seasonal employers is the stadiums. Um, so people will work seasonally with the stadiums. People do holiday. Um, they do fulfillment for Amazon. They do like any number of things.
1: Yeah. One of the really interesting things about the federal poverty numbers are that we, you know, the country is, as far as I know, has always had one number which describes
0: the poverty level and
1: that number made a ton more sense during a time when the difference between living in the in a rural place versus a city was smaller yeah and clearly we live in a time particularly right now in our nation's history where the difference between living in rural oklahoma and housing yourself and living in urban seattle or Chicago or New York and housing yourself is just exponentially different. And so as you consider that number and think about the number of people who are um, officially poor and then you connect that with data like nearly half of American households are one emergency away from either homelessness or poverty, it begins to give you a sense for how the official number really doesn't tell the story right because if half the country is one emergency away from economic crisis
3: and 16 percent is poor yeah, there's a lot of yeah, people yeah
1: who are who who effectively are poor but yeah. we don't call them poor because we've just as you know just as a, as a matter of policy Identified a number and just sort of put it out there as the number, and I think that our work on inequality and you know just talking to people exposes how how inaccurate that mm-hmm. number is and how incomplete a way it is to understand the dimensions of the problem. We live in a society and an economy where, while the official uh, rate of poverty uh, may be 16 percent and the official cutoff for being poor is twenty four thousand six hundred dollars for a family of four that really doesn't tell the story of what's going on in the country that in fact a huge proportion of our fellow americans are either poor or an inch away from becoming poor and the problem isn't that a few people don't have jobs and are poor the problem is that most of us do have jobs and are still poor because we're not paid enough money And I think that inequality may not be exactly the right frame within which to litigate these issues. But poverty for sure isn't that we don't. The country doesn't mostly have a poverty problem. It mostly has a wages problem. So, so what you're talking about is
0: adopting a much more ambitious frame, yeah. not, not a poverty frame. It's not about, people talk about how everybody should have a living wage. We need to move from this idea of a living wage, which is a subsistence idea, yes. to a middle class wage. Yes. In the richest country on earth, Our ambition is for everybody who has a job to be able to afford a decent, dignified, middle-class lifestyle. And I think
3: defining what middle-class looks like and what people can expect as a middle-class person. Like, I think people don't even know what it is acceptable and appropriate for them to expect anymore from a life that is considered to be middle-class. And I think one of the only ways that we can do anything about it is also just, like, show how much bigger it is than, like... Food stamps. You know, I think one of the things that Felicia mentioned is in addition to like raising wages generally, we also have to give people a better voice in our democracy and and make voting more accessible and make people feel more connected to their local lawmakers and um, generally be sort of involved citizens to feel like they have some control over this because I think hugely what I have seen among people is a feeling of a loss of control. Over their future, yeah. over what they can do, loss um, of
1: agency. Yeah, just power. you're just at the yeah.
3: mercy of whatever like rich dudes do next. And,
0: yeah. and you can't ever really be middle class if you live in constant fear of falling out of the middle class. Yeah, yeah. Or of your children not being able to stay in the middle class. I mean, right. I think
3: true middle class life means not having to think about this shit all the
0: time. Correct.
3: <laughs> like I really Correct. think that's the <laughs> that's goal. It. Like if you can just like buy groceries and not think about it, you're middle class.
0: <laughs> I, I, I think you've nailed it, Hannah. Um, had a lot of time to
3: think about this stuff.
0: On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be having a COVID economy retrospective with economic historian Adam Tooze.
3: Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.